I'd like to thank everybody for coming to uh, lunch today. We have only a few more events this year, and this is one of those that I've been looking forward to for a long time. Um, I want to thank uh, Margaret Mills, who, when she was in Afghanistan last time, ran into uh, Soraya, I guess, or somehow. Oh, all on email. But in any case, she's, just, she's very good at persuasion. So. <laughs> Persuaded Saraya Sahadi Nelson uh, to put Mershon Center on her uh, itinerary when she came back to the United States. If you've been listening to NPR the last several mornings, you've been hearing her uh, what appeared to be from Kabul or elsewhere in Afghanistan, where she was all been. taped there. Yeah, <laughs> it was all taped there. Uh, are we going to hear you again tomorrow? I, I don't know. Uh, no, actually, I think t- yesterday was the last story. The last it was, was about uh, a little Afghan girl, actually okay. from Allison's PRT. <laughs> Long That's, story, but anyway, yeah, no, I'm done she also, for the month. She's been in Afghanistan for a little, around two years, not quite, since 2006. Prior to that, for more than two decades, she was a print journalist. She worked with Knight Ritter and the L.A. Times. I'm sure many of you have read and heard her uh, on a variety of things, Morning Edition, All Things Considered, Weekend Edition, and so on. Uh, she mentioned earlier Allison's name. A few months ago, I got an email from one of my undergraduate students from years ago who's in one of the provisional reconstruction teams in Kabul, who was incredibly excited because she had met Soraya uh, at some point in Afghanistan at some undisclosed location in Kunar province, I guess, and uh, was excited she was going to come here. Soraya is going to speak today. Oh, I'm also supposed to make a plug. Uh, She appears on the Fred Anderley show, and that's going to be rebroadcast tonight, they asked me to tell everyone, at 7 o'clock tonight on 8.20 a.m., if you're interested in that. So, Now, though, however, you get live and in person, uh, (laughs) Soraya Sahadi Nelson speaking on why Afghans are losing faith in the post-Taliban government. It's great to have you, Soraya. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm kind of short, so I guess I'll have to try to come out from here, but I want to show some slides because it's, even though I'm a radio person, I think Afghanistan's a very visual country, and so I want to share at least a few of the photographs to help illustrate or demonstrate the theme of today's talk. So um, just let me know if you can't hear me or can't see me. Again, I'll try to pop out a little bit, but I do have to operate this a little bit manually. <clears throat> so um, as was mentioned, I've been in Afghanistan uh, since December 2006. And in that time period, there's been a dramatic increase in the apathy that I've seen in uh, people's just attitude. I mean, any Afghan you, you'll speak to, if you're in a cab, let's say, in Kabul, riding along the pothole street, Somebody will cut in front of you, and uh, the cab driver will say, there's just no rule of law in this country. I mean, it's, it's very pervasive. You know, you go stand on a bread line. People talk about, our government doesn't care about us. Um, and I think what was most telling was uh, last month, you folks may have heard that uh, there was an attempt on President Karzai's life during a, a parade, uh, a ceremony. And <laughs> the fact that they got that close to the president was one thing, but I think what was even more startling for me anyway, personally, was how much I was hearing from people like, so what if they got him? Who cares? You know, just that, that level of apathy is frightening, uh, especially since we as a society have so much invested in Afghanistan at the moment. And you kind of have to ask, you know, what's going on? And, uh, you know, what's accounting for this lack of uh, interest and trust that people have in their leaders, especially since this is supposed to be the, the experiment that worked, you know, the democracy in action, you know, where people elected, actually did elect a president uh, in what appear to be fair elections. So, and this is, this is in Iraq. I mean, you have uh, 
people in Afghanistan are really fed up with war. Unlike Iraq, where war is sort of a new phenomenon, um, there, there in Afghanistan you've had three decades of conflict of one sort or another, whether it was the Soviets, whether it was the warlords conducting civil war. So there really is an interest in making this government work. But again, they're very tired. And, uh, you know, it's, it's despite the fact that we have spent, or I should say, when I say we, I mean the West and the greater international community in general, have pledged $15 million, billion, that's what it be, dollars in development in the past five years in this country, um, most of which has been spent there. So, um, and you, when you, with that, you get things like this, like a school. Now, okay, granted, they're teaching the school out. This is in Lahman province, which is uh, east of Kabul, not too far from where Allison is, actually, uh, one, two provinces south. And uh, this is a madrasa. This is a religious school, and it's actually been built with Western funds. Um, and it, it, it is overcrowded, so they do have classroom outdoors. Let's see if I can do this here. Sorry, I'm not the most technologically advanced person, so you'll have to bear with me. And again, a lot of the classroom is outdoor, but the point is there is education going on. You do see some, you do have some palpable, you know, development. You have, this This is a real accomplishment. This is Bamiyan province, if you remember, that's where the Buddhas are, the big Buddhas. They have one mile of paved road out of, <laughs> but at least it's getting there. And believe me, people are using that one mile, they're going up and down. But of course, most of the Bamiyan looks like this, and we're getting a little closer to what the problems are in Afghanistan and why people are apathetic. But this is something called rock carpet. This is actually a finished road. But believe me, when you're driving on this thing, your insides are jostling, and, and uh, it's not pleasant. And But again, development is coming. We have bridges going in everywhere, which, believe it or not, there are a fair amount of rivers and lakes and that sort of thing in Afghanistan, and most of them do not have bridges. And so that's one thing that's changed, you know, again, with the aid that's coming in. Uh, like this gentleman here, let's see if I can point to him here. This guy, he, he's a, a tribal elder from the Muhammadzai tribe in Kandahar. His name is Niamat. He runs an NGO, and he's an Afghan. He got Canadian money, and he built the bridge. That's the way it's supposed to work, right? So people should be happy. And uh, also, this is in Kunar province, where Allison is. Um, this is a bridge. The PRT there is building a lot of bridge, and in fact, most development in Afghanistan people associate with, with Westerners because they get more from the West. And so as you see here, they're coming to the to Commander Dwyer, who's the uh, Navy commander in charge of the PRG, they're asking him, hey, can you fix this UN bridge, you know, put two more, two more things in. So again, a good thing. You think it would be positive. Here's some more. This is another scene of uh, bridges that are being built in Kunar to connect. Um, if you see that snow-lined ridge up there, that's Pakistan. And so it's really important to connect this part of Afghanistan uh, to the rest of Afghanistan so that these people aren't identifying with that part, which, of course, has Taliban and bad guys and that sort of thing in it. Um, development again here in the south. This is Kajiki Dam in Helmand Province. This is the Taliban stronghold. And um, this is a U.S.-built plant 50 years ago, and now they're trying to uh, refurbish it so that there will be power. million households would get power if this thing is done. It's $16 million for this project alone. government centers going up in the, in the most dangerous of places. This, again, is Kandahar province, um, and you see all these. This area, this is showing. Good, great. <laughs> there is a little PowerPoint thing. Okay, so the Americans are trying to help secure this area. This is the compound, a district center compound. The fact that there's a government presence, again, should be a good thing. Then up in Nuristan province, um, this is, place looks very much like Montana, again, on the Pakistani border. 
uh, northeast, and they're building the government center or the provincial capital from the ground up. This, there was nothing there before. So, yeah, I just want to point out some of the good things because it really defies logic. You know, why is it that things, why, why are people so apathetic when there are changes, there are things that are going on? Well, the, the thing, I mean, the, the reason, the, the Afghanistan that I just showed you in the slides, that's the Afghanistan we see as Westerners. But quite frankly, most Afghans don't see that. You know, they, they live a com- an existence that is com- completely isolated. I mean, you have 80% of the people living in the countryside. In places like this, this is in Badakhshan province, province in the northeast. See the little town here, a little village? In between these huge mountains with, with really no access to, <laughs> to each other, let alone, you know, to Kabul and places like that. This is how most of Afghans live. This is a road, for example, this dirt road is like a donkey trail. It's been expanded a little bit. It goes up to Tajikistan. And this is how people get around. So they have absolutely, this is what they see of Afghanistan. They don't see some of these other things that I was just showing you in the slides. And you get a little bit closer to why the apathy is, is uh, happening by looking at that. Here, this is Banda Amir. This is going to end up being the first national park um, of Afghanistan. They have travertine lakes there. This little village here, again, one of those villages that, People have never gotten even 50 miles to the south to Bamiyan City. You know, they, they live out their lives here in the shadow of these huge mountains that exist all over Afghanistan. Again, Banda Amir, there's that village. This is what your typical village looks like. You know, kids, kids in the street, what passes for a street. In daily life, it's just subsistence, you know, subsistence farming, subsistence animal husbandry. Basically, you spend six months of the year growing your food so that you can survive those bitter cold six months, you know, the rest of the year because Afghanistan does have pretty brutal winters because of the mountainous region. Even in places like this, like Kandahar, this is Kandahar City, um, people don't feel connected to their government. And forgive me for a moment here. I had to do this. My laptop crashed last night, so I had to, like, get my points together here on paper. Okay. So, yes, as I was saying, in Kandahar, you have, even there, people don't know their government. And there's really multiple reasons for that. And and so I'm going to get into that a little bit now. This is perhaps the primary reason. This guy here, the Afghan police officer, not this one in particular, but we'll have him demonstrate the point. The Afghan police force is the main face of government that Afghans in the country will see you know, because the police are somebody that the West and the fledgling democracy there have tried to get out into the communities. This is supposed to be the first line of defense against the Taliban. This is supposed to be bringing law and order. And because they never had a national police force, they had to build this from the ground up. And they ended up just recruiting everybody off the streets, no training. Some of them didn't. He's lucky. He's got a uniform. Many of them don't. And these guys ended up turning into, I mean, perhaps not so surprisingly, I mean, they were given a Kalashnikov, or they had a Kalashnikov, and they turned into militias of sorts, or uh, people seeking to increase their income. I mean, you know, they were the strong men in the community. They were answering to the strong men in the community. Um, corruption is rampant, you know, kickbacks, demands. These guys make 80 bucks a month, the equivalent of 80 bucks a month, which, uh, and so, hey, if you have a gun, you have authority suddenly, you haven't been taught law enforcement. It's not doesn't take a whole lot of rocket science to get to that point. And, and that's what's happened is that this, I think this single most, uh, this particular phenomenon, police, have become the single most re- reason why Afghans are, are disillusioned. Um, if I talk to a bunch of drivers, uh, there, uh, you've probably heard about the Ring Road, which is supposed to be going around Afghanistan. It's going to connect Afghanistan not only to each other, but to neighboring countries. And 
work is moving along on that. Now, I talk to drivers who use that road because nobody actually likes to drive on the ring road, even though there's a lot of progress there, and it's like, well, what's the problem? Number one problem they'll mention is not the Taliban, but the police, because the police are demanding, basically at every checkpoint they're demanding money. <laughs> they want money, you know, they want kickbacks, they want bribes, and it's, it's a real problem. So I think that the, the fact that this is what Afghans are seeing, this has really created, uh, this is certainly contributing to the apathy at a, at a far greater speed than, you know, than anything else we've seen. Um, the... Yet they're also, at the same time, they're a vulnerable target, and they show people how vulnerable the government is to this guerrilla warfare that's going on in Afghanistan right now. I think there have been something like 800 policemen, don't hold me to that number, it could be 800 or 900 policemen killed in the last year by in Taliban attacks. They are a very favorite target because they're out there by themselves, they're not trained. Um, again, oftentimes they're under-equipped. And, and so they become a favorite target. And so people are like, gee, not only are these policemen nasty to us or they, they charge us money, but they can't protect us. They run away or they get killed themselves or get kidnapped and decapitated. And so it's a real problem, and it's something that the Americans are, uh, the American military in particular is working on very feverishly to try or to get them, get the police into a capacity or into a position so that they, they present a different image of nothing else um, you know, to the Afghan people because... In the end, you don't want the military in charge because people have suggested that the Afghan National Army is much better, uh, much further along, much better equipped, much better trained, much more professional. But the problem is you put a, if you put a military in charge, then you run the risk of, you know, if there's a coup d'etat down the road, et cetera, et cetera. It's the same phenomenon that's going on in Iraq. So police are, are definitely a huge, huge part of the problem. And then we have another part of the problem, a narco economy that... Afghanistan remains. Um, poppies are poppy flowers. Uh, not too many weeks after this, the bulb, you know, the, the petals get shed, the bulbs get harvested, and you know, you have your opium for the year. This is in Helmand Province here in the south, right outside of town, um, and this is a, maybe five feet from where the Americans. They can't even couldn't even get out far enough to do to do the. Uh, eradication properly and so it's like right next to the provincial capital you have fields and fields like you see here just you know growing poppy growing and so how does this affect government well for one thing government officials are very widely involved in the drug trade especially when you get out to the provinces i went to um i can't say too much about them because there was you know there's an, an anonymity factor but um i went to the nephew of a pro very senior provincial guy in Kandahar province, who was growing not only poppy, but cannabis, no problems whatsoever. So, of course, people see this. Farmers see this, and, and you know, for them, this is a lucrative, as or well, when we say lucrative crop, it's not like they're making tons of money and driving around in BMWs, but to, to be able to live and support their families and feed them all year, this is, this is the way to go, quite frankly. So if the government's doing it, why not us? Um, again, we go back to the police officers. You, you do have eradication. It is becoming more prevalent. But if you can pay a little bit of a bribe to your local police officer, your field will be spared or a certain acreage of it will be spared. And so, again, that does not engender much trust in, in your government. Also, the, the police don't protect them or the government doesn't protect them from smugglers. And the smugglers have the most control in these sorts of areas. Helmand in particular, is it's a real problem. Helmand, Kandahar, you have the south and the and to some extent the West, uh, where you really have the prevalence or most of the poppy present. And what these smugglers do is, I mean, besides the fact that they pressure these guys into growing the poppy, then they uh, also give them loans because it's a very uh, 
expensive crop to grow. It's very labor-intensive. And so these people borrow money to grow their poppy, and now that poppy prices are dropping because of the huge supply, um, they can't pay the, the loans back. <laughs> so it's like the smugglers basically have them by the neck. And again, the government is not there to protect them. The police are not there to protect them. So it does not engender much trust. We also obviously have insecurity. I mean, I showed you that picture earlier of the district center that, that the Americans are helping build in Kandahar province. How do you access your government if it's behind sandbags and barbed wire? And, I mean, how do you, how do you get to them? It's, it does not engender trust to be, you, know, you don't want to go in there and you're afraid of being seen in these areas that are insecure. You know, going in is, is very difficult because if somebody sees you on the outside, the minute you come back out, you're going to be killed. And so, again, they don't see what, they see consistency. The people out in, in these areas, uh, and we have 11 provinces where there are active conflict going on, 11 out of 34. In these provinces, um, the Taliban are considered to be truer to their word than the government. In other, in other words, if the, the Taliban says, you know what, you've got a dollar bill in your pocket, I'm going to kill you, which they've done for that because they think, you know, that's all part and parcel of the uh, great Satan, or just a borrowed phrase from neighboring Iran. Um, you know, they, but they, they will follow through. They will kill you. They will get you. Whereas the government doesn't follow through. They'll say, come report to us when you have Taliban in the area. We'll protect you. Well, they may or may not protect you. They may not be there. I mean, the, the, the forces, the Western and Afghan forces that are there are spread thin. Again, the police have their own issues. Police will sell you out, too. You know, so, and it, let's say you do turn somebody in. The chances of that that Taliban person is going to be released from prison by paying bribes himself are like 80%, 90%. I mean, <laughs> it's, so again, why would, why trust the government? Why, I mean, what can the government do for, for me, you know, or for that, for you is, is, you know, how they feel. So the, there are other issues like favoritism as well. I mean, you have a lot of, again, these gov this government had to be built up very quickly from the ground up because, you know, once the Taliban left, everything had to start from scratch. And so a lot of it was based on who did you know or, you know, favoritism, that sort of thing. I mean, it wasn't really based on civil service standards that we might apply in the West or even in uh, more advanced uh, developing countries. And so for the longest time, you had governors even, even as high as governors, being appointed who really knew nothing about running a province or providing services. And plus, you know, they, were, they weren't really answering to the people because they were being sent from Kabul. And so what would happen is if things got too bad, people were getting too outraged, then basically Kabul would say, okay, we'll take this governor, we'll move him from X province to, you know, Y province. And nobody was ever fired. <laughs> it was just sort of this reshuffling, this shell game of incompetent civil servants. And that continues to this day, although we'll address in a minute how things are changing a little bit. The other thing, and I touched upon this a little bit, and I'm going to do more now, is there's no local accountability. Everything is, the way the Constitution is set up, everything comes from Kabul. You know, governors are appointed from Kabul. Uh, ministry level, like, for example, your local education minister or your local, uh, you know, culture and information minister, they all are appointed from Kabul, and they don't answer to the governor even. Um, you have a provincial council, but they have no They are elected by the people, but they have no power. They have no money, no budget. So basically, everything is being filtered down from Kabul. And it's with a centralized approach. Again, there's no accountability. So if, let's say, on the local level, you need a school or something, by the time you get that information back to Kabul, get it approved by your particular ministry and signed off on, I mean, it may never happen. And so, again, there's no one's answering to the people. 
And so this is another reason why 80% of the people living in the countryside are losing faith. And not, you know, again, it's, it's not just in the countryside, but, you know, in particular in the countryside, they're losing faith. Um, there's also a fear of a dictatorship forming. Um, a lot of people, especially when we promote this here in the West, I've found that, you know, we, with our people come in and we hang out with President Karzai and we're talking about how wonderful, you know, we have this relationship with President Karzai and his people, and we don't really talk to the local people. And so because we're promoting personalities, again, I mean, the, the people don't want that. They, they're like, wait a minute, you promised us this democracy thing that we went out and voted for, and it's like, and we, we're not having anybody answer to us. I mean, they see, um, they also, and again, we contribute to this as Westerners because uh, the military is involved in development. Um, you know, we're all doing, USAID is doing its own thing. That's the, the uh, Agency for International Development uh, U.S. Uh, United States Agency for International Development, which is like the largest developer there, basically. We also do our own thing, so they even know, they're like, we can't get our services from our government, so we'll go to our local PRT, you know, or provincial reconstruction team, or our local military, or wh whatever particular NATO force is there, and we'll get stuff from them. So again, this sort of devalues the, the value of the Afghan government um, for these people. So, let's see here. Ah, yes, we're going to the next slide now. Whoops. Somehow I missed something here. Well, actually, this is not one we want to get to now. We'll get back to that one <laughs> later. But this woman is, is one of the governors of, of uh, Afghanistan. She is the only woman governor in Afghanistan. Her name is Habiba Sarabi. And she's worked really hard to try and bring development to her province. Her province is the one that has the Buddhas, that has that first national park I was showing you. It is one of the more peaceful, I, I wouldn't say the most peaceful, but certainly one of the more peaceful provinces of the 34 in Afghanistan. And yet it is the, one of the most underdeveloped. And it is in danger, according to high-level people in uh, Kabul, of, of basically becoming a very violent place. We were already seeing signs of it. We're seeing fights between Pashtun and Hazaras there. Uh, because they're not, again, they're not seeing anything coming from their government, so they're settling the rule of law sort of being handled on their own, on their local level, using tribal things instead of using the government. And it's a real danger. She's worked really hard to try and change things, but she's very frustrated. I mean, she tells me that uh, last year, you know, in an attempt to bring more power to the people, as it were, even though she's not elected by the people, um, they did allow the local provinces to come up with the plans for development to send them to Kabul to basically be vetted. And that was the first time that that actually moved up instead of coming down, which is the way it normally works. And she says that out of 163 projects which she proposed, they got 40. So, again, that sort of demonstrates that there is not a whole lot of attention being paid, you know, or, you know, basically you're not responding to the needs of your people at the risk of uh, repeating myself too much. But she also talked about, like, uh, the, the fact that she has no power over the, uh, over the officials that are in the province. She had a culture and information minister in Bamiyan province who apparently was one of these favorites, these people put in because of connections rather than because of ability, and he was unable to get anything accomplished. And this is a province that has some historical, some, you know, cultural uh, things, like even the, bomb, the, the Buddhas, which are destroyed, are still a draw, and you have the first park going in. And he was unable to accomplish anything, according to her. So she, she said it took a year for her running back and forth to Kabul, talking to the uh, local culture and information minister to get this guy replaced. And she's like, that's ridiculous. She's like, I, you know, in any cabinet, in any country in the, you know, in the world, you would not have this. I mean, why is it that everything is being run by Kabul, especially at a time when it's becoming clear that local governance is a really vital issue to security? No answer, unfortunately. 
So um, also they have no budget. Um, her counterpart in Hus province is a governor uh, named Arsala Jamal, also like she, educated like she is, very much a go-getter like she is. And he says he, he wanted to build a gate. I just had a story this week about it. Um, about He wanted to build a gate between two girls' schools. Cost maybe $3,500 to do. But he can't, he doesn't even have that money in the budget to do it. He has to go basically to the Americans and beg and say, please, do you mind funding this, you know. He won't even go to his own government. This is the governor who won't go to his own government because he's like, it's going to take me two, three years to get it from them, if I get it at all. So he goes to the Americans. He's like, this is easier. And he's like, yeah, it's embarrassing. I'm the governor of Hoss, and I have to go ask the Americans for a gate because my own government can't provide it. But if he's saying it, then you've got to think about what the, what the locals are saying. So, so what's being done about this? Because now I've portrayed this really sad portrait for you of, of <laughs> what's going on, because it, it is really scary. And again, the apathy is very, you know, you hear it so much, you start to feel apathetic and cynical yourself. But there are things that are happening to try and address this. One is something called, what I describe as parallel governments are going up. Um, I, I did a story not too long ago down south in Kandahar, the tribes there, the tribal system is very strong in Afghanistan, particularly in, in the Pashtun areas. And what these tribes were doing is were, they were starting to hold their own shuras or council meetings again to basically um, not only do things within their own tribes, but to try and come together with a consensus so that they could address issues like education, security, you know, you name it. I mean, things that were not being provided by their government, they were going to take care of themselves. Now, it was quashed pretty quickly. Um, I hope not because of my story, but <laughs> it's just like the fact that it got out there that they were meeting and they were trying to arrange this. You know, the government tried to step in and discredit, well, I mean, we won't get into a lot of the insider baseball, but they, they, they've tried to put a lid on that. But the fact that the people are to the point where they're like, you know what, we don't even trust this government anymore. We're going to make our own government. It sends war should send warning bells up if it isn't. Um, the, other th the other group that's doing this parallel government structure is the Taliban. And it's very effective in these remote areas that we don't have troops in, or, and I don't just mean Western troops, Afghan troops necessarily, where the Taliban have their own governor, shadow governor, shadow court, and basically the people know to go there, to, these, to that structure, to get what they need, um, to have justice meted out in uh, the courts, for example, because, I mean, they're too afraid to do anything else. So that's another thing. Um, and then we can go back now to this portrait. The other phenomenon that's coming out of this is a reemergence of warlordism, you know, where you have the strong men in particular areas who are starting to feel emboldened because they see the government is weak and the people are dissatisfied to sort of start running things themselves, to start pocketing Western money. They're using, for example, these poppy-free provinces like Balkh province, which we always hold up as such a great example of, of how it could be. You know, the guy who's up there was a warlord, and he's pretty much in charge now, and he's pocketing a lot of money, and he's sort of running things himself independently of Kabul. And when the attorney general from Kabul tried to, like, investigate him, he couldn't get anywhere with it. You know, that's, again, <laughs> loss of faith you know, in, in government, or I'm sorry, yeah, well, loss of faith in government. So then what else is going on? Um, there's knee-jerking, what I call knee-jerking at a central level. And that's basically where it's, there seems to be a move back to Islamism or whatever you want, I mean, Islamic tenets. Uh, for example, Indian soap operas had become wildly popular post-Taliban. And it's unfortunate, I think, from a cultural perspective, just because Afghanistan has its own rich culture, but they really were into this. And so the TVs were running these things, and now they've been banned. 
Um, again, it's the attempt to control, fear of the part of the central government that they're not going to be able to hang control. That's what it seems to be because it just didn't make any sense. They've, they've been doing that. They've been cracking down on the media, terribly cracking down on the media. They've got one guy facing a death sentence right now, a journalism student who they uh, accuse of violating uh, Islam by talking about women's rights. And it's, the whole thing seems to be, again, a little bit trumped up. And in the end, there's a lot of Western pressure now to end it. So the prognosis is that he is going to be uh, released on appeal. But for now, he's facing a death sentence for it. So you have, uh, you know, you have that. And again, the media crackdown is, they have a version of the Daily Show in, uh, well, it's, it's not called the Daily Show, but it's very similar in Afghanistan. And that, that has really poked fun at a lot of this, these governance issues. And uh, Parliament, surprisingly, because usually you'd think Parliament would be sort of against the central, you know, against Karzai's government. But they've been, the one, they've been, I guess, the target of some of the jokes. And so they've uh, pretty much cut that cut that show uh, into pieces, even though it's, they're still airing. They're, they're still keeping up, you know, trying try, – because it is terribly entertaining <laughs> for the Afghans to see it, to see their uh, uh, government portrayed in that light. Also, another thing is that it seems like the central government or central government figures are starting to promote – instead of promoting social justice or reconciliation between the, the various tribes and, and ethnic groups, they are starting to create more of a divide. For example – between the Pashtun-speaking and the Dari-speaking population. On state television, an announcer, I guess, used the Dari word for university in one of his broadcasts. And the Pashtun uh, uh, cultural and information minister, he's a Pashtun, fired, had this guy fired. It was like a huge deal. And, and so it's creating, I mean, the, again, divisiveness is coming. And it's, it, it's, it seems to be what I, again, call knee-jerking <laughs> to, to, to deal with this or, or a reaction to the fact that the people are losing faith in their government. Another thing that's happening, of course, is foreign intervention. I mean, you have, again, the rush by the American military to try and fix this police problem, which is such a huge problem. Um, you have uh, very significant figures like Kai Ida, the new special envoy of the UN, who swears he's going to not be any weaker than Patty Ashdown, who was uh, kicked out, um, that he, he will – I mean, he's tr he wants – he said on air on NPR just uh, this week that He's demanding accountability from this government that they deal with corruption, not just talking, but actually do something about it in the next three weeks before the donor conference. And uh, so, and this donor conference, by the way, is for a $50 billion uh, development strategy that Afghanistan has come up with, and they're asking for 50, $50 billion from the international community, so some attention is being paid to it at the moment. Um, also, these Western, the West is putting pressure on Karzai, but as we saw with the Patty Ashdown thing, you know, he's ignoring it, quite frankly. He's got bigger, bigger problems to worry about. And quite frankly, since we're so, we seem to be so personality dependent, he figures that who, it's not like there's somebody else that they're, they're going to cultivate and bring up in the wings, at least at this stage. So um, I'm not sure that that's necessarily, that there's been any, any it, that's working, the, the Western pressure. But the thing that perhaps, and because I, I don't want to, again, sound too cynical or apathetic myself, even though I live in Afghanistan, um, the, the thing that's showing the most promise is something that, again, this is a Karzai initiative, so to his credit. It's uh, the, the I, I think it's IDLG, and I hope I didn't get this wrong. It's the Independent Directorate of Local Governance. And it's run by a, na a man named uh, Jelani Popal. And he is somebody, he actually has an... I, you know, I should disclose my own bias here. I'm from the Sacramento area. He, he's from the Sacramento area, but his daughter went, is going to the same university my son is going to. But, uh, but that aside, he actually, I mean, he's somebody, he's one of those technocrats that we say that we need in Afghanistan in order to make the country and the democracy work. And he uh, has an NGO background. He also is a successful, his family has a successful exporting business. And he's come back, and he's trying to basically pump 
some energy and power into the local governance arena. And he's really serious. He's very dedicated to it. I mean, and the, th the thing that's interesting is he doesn't have to answer to any ministers. He answers directly to Karzai, and apparently President Karzai is on board. He understands the weakness of local governance and the importance of fixing that issue so that people don't turn on, because that's the, the ultimate outcome is, you know, it, is that if people get too fed up, there's going to be civil unrest and revolt. And I mean, you know, that would make the Taliban's day, quite frankly. So, so some of the things that he's been doing, uh, this director, by the way, started last in about seven months ago. And uh, he's, he says his main objective is to rebuild what he describes as the informal social contract that was broken during the communist times. And basically what that informal social contract is, is where locals sort of, there was an understanding that locals would uphold the law and protect Afghanistan from foreign invaders. It's sort of something that I guess has been bred into the culture over centuries of, you know, there have been so many different invaders coming in. But the point was that it was sort of a matter of pride and priority uh, and agreement from the local level to sort of support the center. That's gone. That's like completely, again, there's, with no social justice, with no functioning government or government functioning in a capable way, apparently this, this, this concept is just out the window. So um, as to, wait, to, to do that, to restore that uh, social contract, he's vetting and replacing governors. And he's actually, I mean, he's going through and doing something which was not happening before. I think you, you probably remember me saying that governors were being just moved from province to province in a sort of shell game. And he's like, enough of that. You know, look, President, you want me to fix this? We need to get rid of this. So, so far he's gone, he's gotten rid of eight or replaced eight of, of uh, the 34 governors. Most recently, Helmont, which I was, you know, and he's replacing them with technocrats or with people who actually have some skills and aren't just somehow connected. I mean, yes, everyone has connections. Obviously, you don't get into, <laughs> into a power without it. But, but the point is there are actually people who ha exhibit some skill when it comes to civil service. So he's also reviewing the qualifications of civil servants through what they call an administrative reform commission. And basically, they're testing everybody and they're checking everybody. And now, some areas are a little more difficult to get to. It takes time. He estimates it'll take eight months more. I'm sure it's going to take a lot longer than that. But it is something that's really needed because, again, you don't have a real competent civil service uh, department or civil service period in Afghanistan, be it city or the or the uh, outlying areas. The other thing he's doing, or he was trying to do, he has to, again, persuade Karzai to basically persuade the Ministry of Finance, um, is to put 25% of budget decisions in the hands of the local province, provincial governors, which was amazing. That gate might get built now without having to go to the Americans for it, which is <laughs> really key. Um, so he's trying to do it, though. Again, it's not a done deal yet. And he estimates that by 2011, I, you know, I totally forgot to show you a picture of the guy because he's really important. There he is. Okay. Um, by 2011, he's estimating that village councils will wield power, will, will wield real power to be able to actually make decisions on the ground. And his basis for saying this is that he's launched a pilot project. And some, I mean, he's very interested, too, in this apathy that's going on. And so he went to a province which is west of Kabul called Wardak. Um, and Wardak is a very heavily Pashtun province. And has sort of become an area of a lot of violence in recent years. It was very quiet. It was, these were Pashtuns who prided themselves on not being connected to the bad Taliban, but they were very Pashtun. Uh, and so, anyway, it's become very violent, though, because you, you can really see that apathy in, in that province. And it's very, right next, it's on Kabul's doorstep. You don't want that. So, so he launched this pilot project, um, I guess it was maybe about six months ago. And basically, the pilot, the aim was to regain the trust of the people. 
So the first thing they did was send in military Afghan security forces to basically clean it up so that people would feel comfortable enough to come and meet with government folks. Because, again, the whole issue of you don't want to be seen when you're out in these areas, uh, you don't want to be seen talking to anybody related to the government because the Taliban will come kill you. So the first thing they had to do was clean it up a little bit so that they could actually, uh, you know, get in there and meet with people, meet, sit down with local people. You know, what is your problem? Why do you not like the government? What is it that you don't like about our, or your government? And so turns out the, the main complaint was the police. And uh, so what uh, Popal did is he basically ousted all the, the police leaders. They fired all the police, you know, brought in people with the recommendations of the locals, you know, who would be a good policeman or police chief or whatever, and they started to fix that problem. They also hired local representatives to sort of be uh, to liaise with the central government and to also bring government services to the people, like po- setting up polio vaccine days or, you know, something to that effect. And so this went on, this sort of, uh, what would you call it, relationship building between the central government and the people went on for about four months. And something amazing happened at the end of that. The people in Wardak actually turned over a Taliban uh, commander to, to the forces, to the Afghan forces. They actually turned somebody in. This is, I mean, I know that to, to you guys it may not seem like a huge deal, but <laughs> in a country where at this point, I mean, Afghanistan, as remote and everything, uh, as remote as it is, it's very easy for an Afghan to know if you're not from your from that area, if you're not, you know, if you're not one of one of our tribe or one of our peeps, and of course a lot of these Taliban are not. But the point is, why would they turn those people in if they don't feel they're going to be protected, you know, by either the government or the police, and that these Taliban are going to end up being released and come back and kill them? So it really has been a problem that even in, in Kabul, you know, you you've, this is the capital of the country. Taliban just operate with impunity because nobody will turn them in. So the fact that they, this happened in Wardak was a, was a big step forward. And, of course, you know, we're talking about four districts. There are 365 districts in <laughs> Afghanistan. So they have a lot of work to do, and it's unclear whether they can really do this everywhere. I mean, you know, Wardak might have, might have been a, you know, might have been one of those things that was a fluke. But, I mean, the idea that they, they are trying to do this, I think, is a positive thing. I mean, it's, at least they're addressing the issue of, lo- of local governance, because in the end, that's key. That is key to making Afghanistan work, is to, to pull all these disparate you know, communities together. So he says their main target right now are that, again, 11 provinces of the 34 are in active conflict and in dire need of this sort of intervention. He says six more, including Bamiyan, are provinces that, because of poverty, are at risk of, you know, going into open revolt. Um, but the, the big question remains about whether he and others can make these fixes before people actually do revolt, because there's a, there's a new factor that's come into the equation uh, in recent months, and that is uh, the, just the poverty, basically. I mean, poverty is always... Africa. I mean, Afghanistan is poor by African standards, so it's a really poor country, but because of the rising costs of fuel and the rising costs of wheat, bread at the moment uh, is twice as expensive as it was four months ago. And for people that make, if they're lucky, make $3 a day, this is just unacceptable. And so, you know, the question, again, is can these fixes, can, can the government do something to, to make itself uh, whole in the eyes of the people before we end up with a situation where, again, warlords, you know, civil unrest, civil war, God forbid, um, and that's, that's the question that remains. So anyway, I've, I've done a lot of talking, and I want to sort of open it up to questions. Uh, so please feel free. I'd like to follow your lead on your comment about um, ex- 
accelerating the police thing. Um, it, it seems to me that uh, from the American military and the NATO point of view, that makes good strategic sense along with the army training as an eventual exit strategy, actually. A lot of the police training, though, is, is uh, also focused on training police to do uh, like military police type stuff, the whole territory, especially in the South, because there's not enough troops in the way. So it's a question of what are they training them for? But it's, it seems to me that you described a situation where the current assumption is that we increase troop levels and accelerate army and police training, and that'll sort of begin to solve the problem. Assumes a cohesive state and a cohesive purpose for those two forces. But what you're describing sounds to me much more like a bottom-up uh, kind of level of activity. I'm just kind of wondering if we're, we're actually looking at this almost completely wrong in terms of how we're thinking about building up these national level forces. An Afghan army of 70,000 troops to, to do what? I mean, where, where, what are they going to do uh, when you really have a national police force and you this, you know, all these different areas and regions? It sounds to me like the kind of stuff you're describing would be much more effective is to empower local level forces. But that seems to then encourage disunion and go completely against the idea of a central government, which is our current basic no, you, you hit the nail. You hit the nail on the head. You hit the, hit the nail on the head. I mean, certainly that is what some of the local areas, like in, for example, Paktia Province, uh, they have something called Ar Arabakai, which are the local. You know, basically every tribe or whatever puts forth its most honest, its most brave people to be the, the guards, you know, of that tribe, or to basically do rule of, you know, enforce law. And this is something that the, that the West and, well, to a greater extent, the central government in Kabul is violently, or vehemently, sorry, opposed to, not violently, although we may get to violence at some point, but vehemently opposed to, because they say this sort of ruins the idea that we've, we have a central government. You know, they still, they, they believe, right or wrong, you know, the, that ha there has to be a central government in Afghanistan because otherwise you have too much of this disunion as you're talking about. Um, you're also right about the police, like what the American military's objective is and what the State Department, let's say, objective is, you know, the dying core people that they bring in, um, they would like to create a police force that can actually, you know, do police work. I mean, investigate crime, you know, protect the innocent, uh, you know, have rule of law, which, uh, again, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but rule of law is a real, is something that's missing from all of Afghanistan. And so you have that fighting going on. But there's still a recognition that you have to have something. Because right now, I mean, it's on, the it's on the brink of anarchy in some areas. And you just can't have that. You know? so, so I think they're sort of thinking the idea of, of what's, what's the purpose and can they, can they come together and how to, to best achieve this seems to be sort of on the back burner. And in the, at the front burner is trying to come up with a professional police force that at least does something beyond collect bribes on the road. So, so how, yeah. side of the public will is that they do intend, in, in terms of polls, is to look favorably at the NATO presence still to a large degree in Afghanistan. But the, the real center of gravity there, the problem is, it, is in the countries of NATO itself, where the pressure would be to leave where there's no clear payoff in this. But it sounds like you're talking about decades worth of investment uh, with any lack of real measurable metrics for well, the American military will tell you that they are, they have, they have this new program that's going on right now where they're basically literally in, in volatile provinces like Kandahar, yanking entire districts of police forces out to be trained for eight or nine weeks and replacing them 
with a very small elite group of, uh, called ANCOP, um, Afghan National Civil Order Police. These guys are very paramilitary, and they're also incredibly professional. I mean, they're sha- well, sha- I, mean, I mean, shaven police officers is something you don't see a whole lot of there. You know, they, they know their stuff. They're polite. Most of them speak English. I'm like, you know, whoa, what's going on here? And these, in fact, the people down there love that kind of, they love these guys. They're like, why can't they stay? Well, again, do you really do you want the police to be a paramilitary force, or is it supposed to be a law enforcement body? And you know, they have to. I mean, well, the argument the military will give you is that it's a guerrilla war right now, and we have to meet the immediate need. You know, we can't worry about the decades down the road. We have to, we have to do what's going on now, and this needs to be the tip of the spear because we can't have the military taking the lead role in, in law enforcement. And so I, it's like I wish I could give you an answer and say, yeah, but you know, you, your points are valid and they're absolutely right. And it, it does take decades. And can, can they achieve it in time? You know, the, the U.S. military is not going to lie and say, yeah, uh, but they're certainly rushing because they, they feel this is key and paramount. I mean, it is the, in the end, they are the face of local governance, whether they have a defined mission, you know, either from Kabul <laughs> or down at the local level. So... So I don't know. I mean, I know it doesn't. I, I wish I could say I have, you know, the magic answer for you, but, uh, but you're right. <laughs> so. well, I guess to uh, return a bit to the drug issue, uh, do you think it's possible to rebuild a country, country while you're systematically trying to destroy its own form of foreign exchange? Well, the. Well, I, I mean, the, uh, how much money could they make? I'm sure they could make a ton, but I, I can't imagine that that scenario is good. I mean, there, there are groups that are promoting that, um, like uh, Senlis, I think, is a group from Britain that's trying to promote at least uh, legalization of opium for medical uses, you know, uh, and to try and – because it, it is a – they are spending a lot of time and energy and manpower look, or trying to deal with the narcotics trade when there are so many other things going on. So um, – but I just I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, in the end, uh, you know, Karzai's government is very adamant about drugs not. I mean, from an Islamic perspective, drugs not. You know, opium is a bad thing. I think it would be politically possible, potentially within Afghanistan, but certainly not by the Western and when I, by Western I mean mainly American entity that stands behind it. Well, it's it's. They would argue that this is not an economy, that this is, you know, a crime. So, <laughs> even though it is a, you know, well, a narco economy. Yeah, but I don't think I don't think as a society we're at the point yet where we would equate tobacco and opium. You know, I mean, yeah. Well, it seems, and I, it, it is a. This is always something that's very confusing to, like the Brits, for example. They're like, you know, this opium that's being, even though it's 90% of the world's opium is being produced in Afghanistan, it's not going to only 5% is reaching an American market. The rest of this is going off to Europe and other places. So why are the Americans so bent out of shape about it? Well, I think it has to do with our foreign policy. But I mean, we ended up. The ambassador who, who left, um, uh, Ambassador Newman, was replaced with the guy from Colombia, and he came in with guns blazing. I mean, the idea was he was going to come and do. Uh, the main thing was like aerial spraying, which of course went nowhere because that's just not that's that's a non-starter for. I mean, if you're trying to win over the local population, which is already on the verge of revolt, you know, you're not you can't spray their fields. I mean, it's just not going to happen. 
<laughs> well, according to Ambassador Wood, it's, it did. So. <laughs> Well, certainly he's being raised in the West. I haven't heard his name bandied about in, in Afghanistan. Just to answer your, the last question first, uh, certainly there's, there's some talk about him running, but I, I don't see a whole lot of traction on the ground at this stage. Again, not, not many people are talking about the election right now, which is not really surprising given what the current situation is at the moment. Well, they've mentioned there's going to be elections next year, but there isn't anything going on. But yes, I've heard that, but I've heard it more outside than inside the borders. So I don't know. I mean, he's seen as an American entity. He may be a Pashtun. He may, you know, have Afghan roots. No, less so. Less so. He hasn't been an ambassador after all. I mean, (laughs) so. But I'm not saying he's the answer either, but, you know, I mean, I was making jokes about the fact that our kids went to the same college and all that, but, um, you know, He's, do, he's trying something which the others aren't, which is, you know, <laughs> any, anything new is good. But to answer, I'm sorry, the, the first question was about... Uh, USAID. You, right. The people. Um, certainly Afghan ministers, people who are know the kind of money that's coming in, they get really irritated by it. Um, the salaries are $250,000 or higher in, in many instances. I mean, it's... Uh, Again, USAID says, what choice did we have? Certainly coming into this, there were no companies that could, you know, handle it. And, and that there's, that's a legitimate claim. I mean, again, Afghanistan is being built from the ground up. But having said that, also the NGOs resent it um, because you know, they would like, everybody, you know, everybody wants their hands in the pot. And it is, I mean, the question is, is it a waste of, is that really an effective use of money if it's all going, you know, for overhead and salaries to Western companies, all going back to Western companies? Um, it's, it ha- it's supposedly moving out of that direction. You know, you, uh, I think USAID has had its hands slapped quite a bit by Congress over this because of various reports and stuff that have come out. And so I think we're going to start seeing more of a shift there. But I, I don't think the resentment, you see it as much, let's see, on the farmer level or something. I mean, you, you'll see it with the governors, you know, the governors who don't like the fact USAID will come in and put a road in. They won't consult. They won't talk to the Afghan, they won't even show the contract to the Afghan, it's, it's all like, you know, private and privileged, and suddenly this road will go up at a cost that's maybe five times as high as what the locals could have built, at least according to, you know, the Afghans, or even the PRT will say that to some extent, you know, so they'll grumble about USAID spending too much money. But I don't think that's, that in and of itself is causing resentment on, on the, that's just my sense. Did you know <laughs> I think maybe Iraq, that, that's a solution to, uh, to get to your second question first. I'm not sure that's the answer for Afghanistan. I mean, you know, it, they, the people in Afghanistan, even though they have tribal sense, they do have a, there is a sense of being Afghan and, being, and, and coming together. But there has to be a long conversation about social justice, which is not going on at all. I mean, there's just no discussion about reconciliation, you know, about 
making the tribes come together again, seeking forgiveness, seeking, you know, reparations or retribution as the case may be. I mean, there's just no discussion. It's all sort of festering. And so that, that you know, is a problem there. As to the Taliban popularity, I have yet to meet a single Afghan who supports the Taliban and says, let's bring them back as a government. They may support Taliban-style Islam. They may support, but nobody wants, I mean, nobody likes the Taliban. But again, what, what you're seeing with, with the reason that it seems like the locals must be supporting them or are harboring them or, or whatever the case is, is because why should they fight? What power do they have to fight against these guerrillas who are, you know, someone likened them once uh, to me to cockroach. It's sort of you turn the light on and, the, and, you know, that's the light being, let's say, if the coalition or somebody comes in and then the cockroaches scatter and the minute you turn the light off, they all come back. And the topography is such in Afghanistan that this is the reality. I mean, it's not like the Taliban go away and never come back again. And so as a result, though, you know, so it's not a matter of liking the Taliban. It's a matter of, like, you're forced to live with them because there's no one else. There's a vacuum there, you know, to deal with the – there's no alternative. There's no one keeping them out. So. Oh, sorry. Margaret, <laughs> I <laughs> I think for the academics, maybe it's a principles issue. I think for the local farmer, again, who spends six months of the year, you know, uh, growing food just so he can survive the next six months, he, he uh, basically is, is saying there is no government. I mean, there, this thing in Kabul or whatever isn't doing anything for me. This, gov- this district center behind sandbags, what's the point? I'm not going to get anything out of it. They're going to demand bribes, if anything, and I get nothing for it. So, therefore, let me turn to something else. I mean, in the case of the parallel government that the, that the tribal elders were doing, it's very interesting because what was explained to me is that uh, these tribal, these shuras only exist when Afghanistan is in crisis. In other words, that they, they, this is not their prefer, uh, preferred method of of doing business, but that the point is if nobody else is addressing their security, education, health, you know, economic needs, then they have to do it for themselves, and the tribe sort of reverts back to itself. So, again, just depending on who you talk to, I mean, the principles, if you go to Kabul, yeah, you'll hear a lot of debate about, you know, the centralized government. Should it be more of a parliamentary system that elects a prime minister and et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think that even, they care about that out in the hinterlands, so, which is, again, where 75 to 80% of the population lives, so. Thank you. 
it is definitely a sense in the Pashtun areas as well, although a little bit less so. I mean, but it's sort of a shifting of blame, though, when they do that. I mean, <laughs> it's it's always the other guy who's doing it. I mean, <laughs> I did a story, uh, for example, about this pathologist in Kabul who was doing uh, examinations of the remains of suicide bombers. Because you go to any Afghan police chief, Pashtun, Tajik, or whatever, and he'll tell you they're from they're all from Pakistan. None of them are Afghans. Yeah, no, and this guy was able to through the through the pathology. I mean, through the what's it called? The, I can't think of the word. What, no, when you do a post-mortem, like a <coughs> autopsy. Thank you very much. That word just was not in my head this morning. Okay, so um, you know, through autopsies, he was able to find out, identify the, the remains enough to be able to basically established that all these guys were Afghans, you know, that this, <laughs> this and so what you have, and, and I mean, the American military will tell you that uh, a lot of these are disaffected youth, you know, they're underemployed or unemployed and frustrated and, you know, they're, they need something to do and so joining the Taliban, I mean, they become tools for recruitment. Um, I do think there's a lot of direction going on from, from that side and I think the Pashtuns, Tajiks or whoever recognize it, but if you push them hard enough, they'll also admit that there has to be, I mean, they have to be able to find a haven to be able to, to do what they do. And that a lot of the youth are influenced by that. I mean, it's, it's a real, you know, uh, problem. But there's no alternative. I mean, I guess they can join the police force and collect bribes. I mean, that would be, <laughs> again, sorry, cynical. But, uh, you know, that, that's, that's sort of the issue. But, yes, the, the blame is always put on, on that side of the border. And I don't think that's really, it's a really valid, valid thing. So... They just care. Honestly, it's a matter of just sheer survival. They don't have electricity. They don't have water. They don't have, like, the, the basics that we think about, you know, we, that we don't think about as, as Westerners. They don't have that. They don't have any of it. And so I think for them, these con- – and plus it's illiterate. It's a largely literate population still, I mean, because it takes time to, to build literacy. And, and so for them, if these are all concepts, Kabul and parliament and uh, – you know, many of these places still don't even have, t- even though TV is coming and satellite dishes and all that, you know, many, they don't have, they don't have electricity to power, <laughs> to power the TV. So, I mean, in terms of developing our, our way out of this, um, I don't, I mean, it's been seven years and the insurgency is worse now and there's more building than, there, than there's been. I just don't think that's the only solution. You can't have peace and security and prosperity without, I mean, the, one of the NGOs put it, I thought, very well. It's like you need social justice, you need um, you need economic, or you need development. And what was the third thing she said? And I can't remember what it is. Oh, yeah, good governance. Those are the three factors that you need. And right now, none of those are really, really prevalent. So, I mean, because honestly, a place like Kunar Province, where there's been a lot of, I mean, this has become the showcase where all the congressmen and senators and everybody come. It used to be Khos Province, and they come up to Kunar. And they'll come in and you'll see all these new roads. And, and I was told by the previous commander 
about how you can count gas stations on the road, and that's a good way to see economic progress. And it, and it is, because, I mean, it's like these people would not be putting their gas stations there if they were going to be blown up. So it does bring security. And yet, in, in the past week, there were, I think, they caught two suicide bombers. There were still four on the loose, you know. There's still people under threat. I mean, PRT was under lockdown. You still have the, well, the Korangal Valley is a whole, whole different uh, <laughs> problem, you know, that's even separate from Quinar. But the point is that it's not fixing the problem. It is creating jobs for underemployed youth and, and uh, for the men, and so it's giving them something to do. And people do want, I mean, honestly, you'll see these little shacks, and they'll, they'll run a little store out of that. I mean, it's just amazing to watch market economy at that basic level. But these are a very... Uh, you know, smart people or prosperous people, they want to do, I mean, you know, they know how to make money. And if they can get that stuff moved by road, you know, that, that helps. And it does promote progress. But in and of itself, it's not enough. I mean, you, if it were, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be seeing the insurgency getting stronger, even though the military would probably disagree with me that it's getting stronger. So. The only thing, I mean, because I have a print background, so I like to go on a little bit sometimes. And they might suggest, they might suggest, look, that sentence is a little long. You know, you're going to lose the person sitting in the car, and he's going to turn the dial. And so we'll shorten it. But, I, I mean, the one thing, it's, it's been beautiful about NPR because we're, we're the only American, I'm not doing this to, to plug NPR, seriously. I've, I've worked for a lot of different news outlets. NPR opened an Afghanistan bureau. Why is it we're the only ones to open an Afghanistan bureau? I mean, this is the, the quote-unquote other war. This is, this is supposed to be our success story, Afghanistan, right? And no one's, we really are not paying that much attention to that war because we're so focused on the other one. And, and so NPR said, go. And they didn't say, this is what we're looking for, or this is your agenda, or look for these stories and not these. Because, I mean, the one thing I was determined personally to do was get away from the model of let's look at how the Taliban and the government, sort of this chess game, you know, where, where do the pieces move today? I feel Afghanistan is too often... Um, sim- just sort of boiled down to this like battle between the Taliban and and the government and the West. And I think, as I hopefully demonstrated today, there are some other issues at play here that are much more, you know, I mean, that are well, certainly much more in need of attention. <laughs> I think, you know, because in the end, you know, the guerrillas are not going to go away for now. So, I mean, no. But I, NPR has been very good about not, you know, telling me. I, I've never been told don't do that story or change it this way or look at this angle. So, I don't know, maybe I'm just really lucky, but I've never had that, so. No, I mean, not, again, just to make it sound smoother, but not to change the meaning or to lessen the impact or, I mean, they, they will ask if I, if I make a statement and I don't quote somebody or whatever, that they'll say, you know, what's your factual basis for this? Just as sort of a fact checking, which they should do. I mean, you know, they should always challenge reporters, you know. But, uh, but no, I, have, I haven't had... I've never... I mean, actually, I've had a couple of editors who are like that, but not an NPR, so what you're suggesting. Balkans. 
but they say it's much more intense in the Balkans, and people who've served in the Balkans say you cannot draw, I mean, you can draw some comparisons, but you cannot draw, I mean, Afghanistan is its own animal. So, um, yeah, but that's, that's, the, that's one I've heard it likened to. Yeah, in the sense that you need to really understand the culture that you're trying to help, and the culture of Afghanistan is very, as, as simple as think life is there, again, it's the issue of survival and growing food and, and surviving winters and just, you know, marrying and moving on and that sort of thing. It's, it is very complex. I mean, because of the way the topography, maybe it's the way the topography is, it's different peoples, everybody living in these, you know, so you have a real blend of cultures and very strong cultures that I don't think we necessarily understand. We, we as expats necessarily understand sitting in Kabul or, you know, doing what it is what, that we're doing out in, the, in particular fields. I mean, every place is unique. And people like Kai Ida has experience in the Balkans. He's a former NATO guy who's now the UN Special Envoy. And he was telling me, he's like, you know, you just, he says, is there anything that I've learned in my three weeks because he had barely been on the ground three weeks? He's like, this is not the Balkans. I mean, you know, so. Kind of following to that. They're very, it's very devoted. I mean, uh, I did Ramadan there for the first, or Ramazan, as Farsi-speaking people call it, um, for the first time there this last year. And normally when you're a traveler, you're allowed to drink water, you know, or something. And I actually was sick. We were traveling someplace to do a story, and I drank a little bit of water, and I thought my driver was going to just leave me on the side of the road. It was like, you know, and I, I'm not even, you know, <laughs> practicing Muslim or anything, but it didn't matter. It was just, they're very devout, very devoted, and it's an, uh, sort of an uneducated devotion. I mean, you have even um, mullahs who can't read or write, but, you know, they're mullahs. And um, so, and also the government really, I mean, they, they look them, at themselves as the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan, but it's not applied, it's not quite like their neighbors to the West. It's not Iran. I mean, you don't have mullahs in charge, so it's, you know, there's a limit, so. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Well, I tell you, when I went to Noristan and I met with the governor there, who also happened to be a, a pizza parlor owner in Sacramento before. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what all these Sacramento guys are all, you know, and he and I were chatting, and I'm like, man, if I had a million bucks, I'd help, I'd invest right now in a ski resort in this area. This, this is the next ski haven. <laughs> I, mean, I love to ski, and it's, it's just gorgeous. Yes, I can see that happening, but it's just, we, there's a long, I mean, you have to get there first. I mean, it's not even, again, it's not the Taliban that I'm that worried about. It's just, you have to make Afghanistan, Afghanistan, a country that's, that's ruled by law, that has a government in some way, shape, or form, you know, that where it's sort of moving together in one direction. And if there's a ways to go. I mean, I, you know, I wouldn't be plunking down my million dollars yet, let's put it that way, to, <laughs> to get my return on my investment. So. 
Oh, I think I'm so there's, sorry, there's one more back there. Yeah. I haven't heard that. I mean, I, I did Haiti. I didn't do Somalia, so I can't speak to that very well. I'm not that I'm an expert on Haiti either, but. Um, no. I was kind of surprised they did the Balkans. They were saying the Balkans, because I ask about this. I mean, a lot of people will always compare it to Iraq because that's the current thing. Well, the. I think that, the, yeah, the sort of international approach to dealing with the problem, because that's a real. I mean, the Taliban. Uh, you know, what was my favorite saying that uh, Joanna Nathan of International Crisis Group does? What is it? The uh, NATO has the watches and the Taliban have the time. And that's that's sort of the dilemma you run into there. So. Just one, one final thing. Uh, you mentioned that you never heard anybody say they liked the Taliban. Have you heard people say it was better under the Taliban? All the time. But again, when you probe a little bit, then they have to admit, well, maybe it wasn't quite that good. But yeah, the, the problem is... The crime, I didn't even, address, I should have addressed this more, but the criminal, uh, the crime is just really on the rise there. It's rampant. Kidnapping, especially of Afghans, is just, you know, it's, it's become a moneymaker in places like Kabul, you know. And there's no, there's just absolutely no law enforcement that's going on. I mean, again, I don't mean to trash the police. I know that they're, they're facing a lot of obstacles, but it's a real problem when, <laughs> when you don't, you can't count on the government to even protect you, you know, protect your house or protect your, you know, life and, Thank you. Hopefully I wasn't. Thank you so much. So I will be here for a few minutes if you want to catch her. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Well, sorry, I was like a little. I'm just still jet lagged, but. (laughs) No, it's weird. I came last Thursday, but.